Thank you for joining us as we continue our Colossians series called Why We Do What We Do. As a verse-by-verse study of the book of Colossians and the behind-the-scenes look at what Paul the Apostle was addressing to this church in Colossae through this book of the Bible known as Colossians. Last week, we covered the first 14 verses of this letter that begins with a ton of love and affirmation for these believers in Colossae. And as we unpacked last week, Paul's praise was not for them in particular, but for the God who was using them. Today, we're going to walk through a passage that is very familiar. It is a passage that many of us have heard, I've taught before, and we've spent time in as a community. This is one of the most exhaustive (laughs) explanations of who Jesus is in Scripture. While not complete because of all that Jesus is, it is very descriptive and gives us a great sense of what Paul was attempting to communicate to the Colossians, especially as many of them had syncretism to compete with the truth of the gospel. So instead of just explaining how incorrect adding to the truth of Scripture is, Paul does a much better case of pointing out who Jesus really is, his supremacy, and how it's all about him. One thing I want us to always be thinking about, especially in our preaching, our discipleship, our service, and anything else we're doing, is that we lift up Jesus so God can draw people to himself. Today, the sermon is all about Jesus. It's about what Jesus has accomplished. It's about who Jesus is and what Jesus does, because this passage in which we're going to unpack today is all about Jesus. The person of Jesus is the most famous person to ever live. In the past 2,000 years, there has not been a man or woman who has been talked about as much, worshipped as much, written about as much, or argued about as much as Jesus. Everyone around you may have heard Jesus's name, but that doesn't mean they actually know who he is. No one stubs their toe and yells out Justin Bieber. And even if you don't believe that Jesus is God, you have to do something with him. He seems to be the most polarizing individual in all of history. But who exactly was and is this Jesus? See, it creates some of the biggest disagreements in all of history when we start to talk about who Jesus really is which even though it creates arguments is very important for us to understand because considering who Jesus is may be the most important question any of us will ever have to answer. People generally look at Jesus in a few different lights. He was a great man, a great teacher, and really taught life lessons that people needed to hear. And that's kind of the good man, good teacher argument. Some will say he was a great prophet who spoke of God, but wasn't God. He was a moral person, a kind of a prophet slash religious guy kind of argument. Some will say that he was a charismatic fraud who wanted to mislead people and get them to believe that he was God. He was a crazy man with a Messiah complex kind of argument. And then there are many who will say that he is the son of God who lived the perfect life, died a death for mankind's sin, and physically rose from the dead, proving his deity. C.S. Lewis, who was a former atheist and medieval literary scholar, he became a Christian and an apologist and a theologian who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, The Great Divorce, Screwtape Letters, and Mere Christianity. 
He wrestled with Christianity for quite some time. He didn't want to believe that Jesus was actually God, but he had to do something with Jesus, the claims that he made about himself and the claims that others made about him. He puts it this way regarding how you must view Jesus later on in his life. He says, am I try, am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him? I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He, was, he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. C.S. Lewis. So I want to take us to Matthew chapter 16, a familiar passage. Many of us have read this passage. We know of it. We've talked about this passage before, but it was this book written by one of Jesus' disciples, Matthew, who had his name changed from Levi to Matthew. And when Jesus called Matthew to follow him, he dropped everything and started to follow Jesus. Jesus and his disciples had been traveling, and Jesus had this itinerant preaching ministry, going from city to city, teaching and preaching the message of the gospel of the kingdom of God, that God has come to them, that they don't need to work their way to God because God has come directly to them through him, Jesus Christ. Now, he is with his disciples in this intimate moment as he will be having this very important conversation with those men who are within Jesus's inner circle, and we actually get to hear what this was like. So in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, here's what it says. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Jesus asked his disciples a question. Now, I need to state something that I do very regularly is this, that when Jesus asks a question, he never asks a question out of ignorance, but to expose something in his hearer. So when he asks, who do people say that I am? He's going to point out something. They have been traveling and many people have been coming to Jesus to have their physical ailments healed. And Jesus did that for many people. But most importantly, he would forgive people of their sins, which if he is not God is blasphemy and untrue. They were in Caesarea Philippi, which was near Mount Hermon and considered the gates of the underworld. It was also known as Hades, and that will be important in just a moment. Jesus asks in a special question, in a special way, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Son of Man is a messianic designation. It was a term used in the prophetic book in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament, specifically the book of Daniel. It essentially means that Jesus, the Son of Man, has been given authority and dominion and a kingdom, and Jesus called himself this, explaining the authority in which he believed he had. So either he does have this authority, or he's crazy, or he's a narcissist, but if he actually is the Son of Man, then he can absolutely call himself that. So in verse 14, here was the reply, and they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. 
Peter is generally the spokesperson for the group of disciples, and he responds with, others think that you are a prophet. Because people had witnessed the miracles. They had heard him speak with the authority that they had never heard from anyone else before, and he was different. There hasn't been a person anything like him, and yet they still kind of ignored who he truly was by pointing out that he might have been somebody else. The general tendency in all these answers that were given were simply to underestimate Jesus, to give him a measure of respect and honor, but to fall far short of honoring him for who he truly is. Then verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So real quick, jump out of the story for just a moment. I have a question for you. Who is Jesus to you? Do you see him as a good man, a good teacher, or maybe even a good prophet? Or is he God? Is he the one and only God? the Alpha, the Omega, the name that is above every name, because we as people, as humans, as people that live on this earth, have to wrestle with this question, who is Jesus to you? Verse 17, Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus uses the term rock, it's Petros, in which he will build his church. But he also calls Cephas, who is Peter, uh, the Greek word is Petros, which means little stone. And Jesus, in my opinion, is being punny here. And not sure that we generally see that at first glance. Jesus is the cornerstone. So what he isn't saying is that he will build his church on Peter as if Peter is a pope, but that Jesus will build his church on Peter's confession that you are the Messiah, the anointed one, that you are the Christ. Church, everything we do as we follow Jesus should be based on this statement that Jesus, you are the Christ. That's not Jesus's last name. That is his title. That is his role. That is his place in this world, and it should be in our hearts. We answer who we believe Jesus to be every day by how we behave. He is the Christ. He is the one that is above everything and everyone. He is the one that we trust, but how we live shows if we truly believe that. Jesus says he will build his church on the confession, Jesus is the Christ. This is what the church, church of the valley, the church of the living God is truly all about. This is what we have in common with other people who are parts of other churches. Do they make Jesus the Christ? Is he not merely just a good teacher or a good moral man or a God, but not the God? Do we actually treat him as the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ? And Jesus says that the gates of Hades would not prevail against his church. Hades, which was a term that signified death, would not prevail against Jesus and his church because Jesus has defeated death. And we need to understand that we don't look to Jesus as someone who can just teach us how to be a better person, but that his perfect life lived, his sacrificial death on the cross, his burial and his resurrection defeated the power that sin had on mankind. There is a way out from an eternity without God. And that way of not allowing sin to rule in our life and our eternity, that way is named Jesus but you must believe, trust, and have faith that he is the Christ. When I meet with people, the question that I ask that matters more than anything I could ask is this, who is Jesus to you? 
It's just as important as what is the gospel, but the thing we need to understand is that it is not about intellectual acceptance of some facts, but to submit your life to a God who did for you what you could not do for yourself. Colossians, which is the letter we're studying, is a letter written to the church in Colossae by Paul. Paul was an apostle who originally murdered Christians for claiming that Jesus was God. Oh, the irony. He ran into Jesus after Jesus had died this gruesome death on a cross, physically rose from the dead, and then Paul runs into him and Paul is changed. His words, his actions, his passions, his priorities were changed because he met Jesus alive after he had died and knew that Jesus was the Christ. Colossae, as we've been studying, is a city that's been thriving through the trade routes located in the city, but a few years previous to this letter being written, that, that trading in the city had almost completely stopped. So it was a city in decline economically. Colossae was located in, in current day Turkey. And the church of Colossae had experienced a very dangerous heresy that had started to perverse the gospel. Heresy is when people start to use their wants or their agenda to perverse what scripture says. And as long as there is sin in the world, we're going to have heresy in the church. People will say things like, Jesus was only a man, or Jesus was created, or Jesus didn't think that he was God, yet Scripture teaches us something completely different. The heresy that Colossae had experienced was a form of Gnosticism, this syncretism that we had talked about before, that Jesus was a created being, that it had not risen from the dead. So we read as Paul addresses these exact arguments against Jesus and who he really is, and also how people were adding to the gospel through syncretism. So verse 15 of Colossians 1, here we go. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is the image of the invisible God. Do you want to know what God is like? How much grace does God have? How, how God sees his creation? You look at Jesus. So many people have these theories of what God is like, but if you truly want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Read the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Look at how he spoke to people. Look how he loved the social outcasts, how he provided grace for those who the world didn't think deserved it. You can know God personally, and it is only through following and loving Jesus, the image of the invisible God, that knowing God is possible at all. Jesus is not one of many gods who have a piece of what God is like. Jesus is the exact likeness of God. He is the photograph. He is the Instagram post of God. See, Jesus is God with skin. The firstborn over all creation, Paul says. Many people attempt to skew and perverse what this means, but as this was translated from Greek to English, we seem to assume that the firstborn means inception when it actually means preeminence of position. It was Jesus's rank. He was the firstborn. He was above all and through all. It was all about him. Jesus has always been. He was not created by God. Jesus is God. And his rank is above all things, just as a firstborn in a family in the Jewish context in which this was written. Jesus was the heir of all things, just as a firstborn son would be in their family affairs. Verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is the creator. He was not created, and all things that are created are underneath Jesus and his supremacy and his preeminence. 
everything in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, all powers, rulers, authorities, thrones, all things created were created through and for him. That is a powerful verse. There is nothing in this world that will not bow down to Jesus. Jesus is king, not just of those who believe in him, but everyone. He wins. He shows up against the devil in Revelation and all of his demons. Jesus meets them and Jesus opens his mouth. And before he's done saying, I am, the fight is over. See, it's not a fair fight. It's over at the sound of his voice because Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. There is no one higher. He is Lord. He is the only God who deserves our worship. And any and everything is under the dominance and dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ. That should bring so much peace to those of us who are struggling, especially in this season, that are dealing with anxiety and the fear of the unknown. Everything is under God's control, under the power and supremacy of Jesus Christ. See, this life is not promised to be free of trials. But in Christ, this life is promised to be under someone's control who loves his creation more than we can truly comprehend. Let me state something I do periodically, but I think many of us may have forgotten during this dumpster fire known as the year 2020. God loves you. Like he loves you in spite of you. God loves you and he knows what you did last week. God loves you and he knows those thoughts that you never, ever, ever want to hand over, let alone tell him about. God loves, God's love is not predicated on your earning. It is offered through the beauty of his grace and mercy. There was another heresy that had come into the church that Jesus was just an angel, that he wasn't any more important than a created angel. And let me state this, the first, the first way or the best way to spot a cult is they attempt to lower Jesus's supremacy. So who is Jesus? God, the only God, the Lord King Almighty. But cults will tell you that he is an angel or one of many gods or just a prophet. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus died a gruesome death and physically rose from the dead and ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father and one day he will come back to judge the earth. That is the real Jesus. Not a good teacher, not a created angel or a good prophet. He is the great I am. Verse 17, he being Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus is before all things. He has always been. His life did not start when he was born to Mary. He has always been. When the foundation of the earth was created, Jesus was there. When man was created in God's image, Jesus was there. When Jacob wrestled with God, I believe Jesus was there. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the furnace by the King Nebuchadnezzar, I believe Jesus was there. When Daniel was thrown in the lion's den, Jesus was there. When you are going through it, Jesus is there. When you stop breathing through your lungs, Jesus is there and there is nothing in or outside of this world that is out of Jesus's control or sight. Without Jesus, this world would not spin at the speed that it spins. It is he who keeps the world spinning the way that it does, a little slower and we would all freeze to death, a little faster and we would all burn up. It is Jesus who holds all things together. And we are his and he is ours. And if we by faith have received his grace, repented from our sin and trusted the son, we 
can know that we are secure in him. The writer of Hebrews seems to have a parallel passage as he starts to write his letter in Hebrews chapter one. Here's what it says. Long ago in a galaxy far, far away, just kidding. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. God used prophets through the Old Testament that testified to the coming of the Savior. Then the Father sent his Son into the world to point people to himself, who is the heir of all things. He made the whole universe and everything in it. The Son is the radiance the writer of Hebrews says, of God's glory, the exact imprint, the exact representation of God's being. His death and resurrection has paid the debt that we acquired and earned. And then he ascends to heaven and he sits at the right hand of the Father over and above angels and every other created thing. Verse 18, and he, Jesus, is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, Jesus is the head of the church, and we are either on a playlist or we are in person to worship Jesus, to celebrate that one day he's coming back, to gather together, to practice heaven through worship and relationship. That's why we continue to offer services online as long as we can safely and under the government's guidelines also meet in person, we are going to continue to offer the playlist. But if we cannot meet in person for whatever reason, we're going to continue to offer the playlist. Why? Because we want people to be able to celebrate the fact that Jesus is coming back. Now, we know week to week, that the spreading of this virus, unfortunately, may mean that we may have to go completely back to just doing this in person, or I'm sorry, online. I'm pretty excited about the time when we're just doing this in person. But the reality is that we're in a circumstance and a situation where it needs to be flexible, but we're not going to stop lifting up Jesus and begging God to draw people to himself, even if it's through a screen. Some of the ways that we are, some of the reasons we're doing it this way is because we, one, want to verify that as we met last week, that no one has acquired the virus. No one was here with the virus where it could have spread. We want to make sure that the county is allowing it with guidelines that are, I'm hoping, are for the safety of people. And most importantly, we want to gather safely with the resources that we have, and we want to gather together to be able to lift up Jesus, but we want to do it safely, and we're focused on that, on how we do it. And this past week when we met in person, I have to just say that people were so respectful. I know wearing a mask sucks at different places. It bothers me. I got a beard, guys. I got glasses that fog up. But being able to see at least the eyeballs of people and being able to be in person with them, even if it was from six feet apart, man, it was so nice to be able to be together. And it was so nice to know that people were loving each other by keeping their distance, wearing their mask. But we exalt Jesus through meeting in person and online. 
Both are opportunities for us to be able to engage with the creator of heaven and on earth. And it is also one of the ways by we're offering this opportunity in person and online because we want people to be able to choose what is most comfortable for them. This country is fractured because of selfishness and different methodologies. But I'll say this, any way you can worship the true Jesus and be in community, even if it's using technology, is better for your soul than isolating and being angry that things can't be the way they were eight months ago. We gather online or in person to celebrate the fact that Jesus is coming back and we equip people to be grace givers to the world around us. The goal of following Jesus is not to make you wealthy. It does not guarantee that you're going to be healthy. The message of the gospel and the scriptures is that no matter what, Jesus is enough. He is sufficient. He is preeminent. Jesus is the Christ. His resurrection from the dead defeated death and made it so if you would trust Jesus as Savior, you would no longer have to be identified by your sins. You are no longer enslaved by those sins. You have a Lord who defeated the power in which sin had over you. It doesn't mean you don't sin. It just means you're not defined by them anymore because you can be defined and identified by Jesus. And as the one who is preeminent, Jesus, we as followers of Jesus Christ get to see the church in which the way that we see it is Christ is at the head. He is over his bride, which is the church. With all our issues as the church, with all our sin, God is still refining. He is still restoring. He is still sanctifying his church, which you and I, if we truly love Jesus, are a part of. And there is no hierarchy in God's love. Listen, I'm a pastor. I'm an elder in God's church. And even though that means it comes with some special responsibilities, God doesn't love me more than he loves you. We are all even at the foot of the cross and we are all in need of being able to look up at our perfect savior who died and rose again. Verse 19, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If you've got your Bibles out, I'd encourage you to underline this verse. Think about this for a moment. For in him, for in Jesus, the fullness of God, everything about God, all the attributes of God, all the glory of God, all the power of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. God was pleased because all the fullness, all the attributes of God were not spread amongst his creation, but dwelled fully in Jesus and Jesus alone. When people say, well, God is everywhere and he's in this tree. Wrong. God is in Jesus. And Jesus is the glory of God, the exact representation of his being, because God was pleased to dwell fully in Jesus and Jesus alone. God was pleased. God was satisfied. God was delighted to have his essence be fully on display in his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God reconciled us to himself through Jesus. Another way to read reconcile is the word exchange. Jesus got what we deserved and we got what he deserves. He exchanged his life for yours. For those of us who would submit our lives to him, this is known as the great exchange. But only through the death on the cross of a perfect substitute could we be made right by a holy and just judge. 
Someone had to pay the debt of our sin. And Jesus did that for you and for me. And it is yours if you have trusted him because that payment has paid the debt. If you receive him, if you confess that he is the Christ, you no longer have to feel that you have to earn anything or work your way to God because God came to you in Jesus. John Calvin spoke about this great exchange. He used a different word for the exchange, but this is a bit meaty. It's some words that we don't necessarily use in our current context, but I want you to see this quote that he had. He said, pious souls can derive great confidence and delight from this sacrament as being a testimony that they form one body with Christ so that everything which is his, they may call their own. Hence, it follows that we can confidently assure ourselves that eternal life of which he himself is the heir is ours, and that the kingdom of heaven into which he has entered can no more be taken from us than from him. On the other hand, that we cannot be condemned for our sins from the guilt of which he absolves us, seeing he has been pleased that these should be imputed to himself as if they were his own. This is the wondrous exchange made by his boundless goodness. Having become with us the son of man, he has made us with himself sons of God. By his own descent to earth, he has prepared our ascent to heaven. Having received our mortality, he has bestowed on us his immortality. Having undertaken our weakness, he has made us strong in his strength. Having substituted our to our Sorry, having submitted to our poverty, he has transferred to us his riches. Having taken upon himself the burden of unrighteousness with which we were oppressed, he has clothed us with his righteousness. The great exchange or the wondrous exchange is when Jesus gets what we deserve and we get what he deserves. And it is beautiful and it is scandalous and it is outside of human understanding of love, but it is what the cross and resurrection provide us. Verse 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, can we just admit that we are not good on our own? Like the things that I want, the way I view fairness and how I want everything to be fair for me, but not for everyone else, the anger that I have towards others, towards people that act certain ways, none of that can be considered righteous. But God doesn't let me go out like that. He gifts me his son. He gifts me his spirit. He gifts me his word. He gifts me the church. He gifts me opportunities to grow. And this God who is such a great gift giver doesn't judge me based on my goodness because I have nothing to bring. He grants me a pardon because of his son. Man, I love Jesus. Jesus lived, died, rose again, and can be trusted so you don't have to attempt to justify yourself. Verse 22, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Those of us who have trusted Jesus are holy and blameless. Let me let that sink in for a moment. If you have committed your life to Jesus before God, you are holy and blameless. We do not have to try harder to look Christian. We just need to love Jesus because he made us Christian. 
Only he can do that. Not enough good works, not enough of abstaining from rated R movies. If you never listen to Cardi B, if you always say God bless you every time someone sneezes, none of that matters. It doesn't justify you, nor can it save you because the only one who justifies, the only one who saves, the only one who makes us holy and blameless, you guessed it, is Jesus. Him and him alone. Jesus being a man, God taking on flesh and dying as a sacrifice for our sins, God makes us holy. He makes us set apart. He makes us blameless by removing the veil so we can receive this message of the gospel. That holiness is promised to us, that we have a new life that God actually accomplishes in every single one of us who have put to death the gospel of earning and been made alive with the gospel of grace. One more quote for you. Meaning no disrespect to the religious convictions of others, I still can't help wondering how we can explain away what to me is the greatest miracle of all and which is recorded in history. No one denies that there was such a man, that he lived, that he was put to death by crucifixion. Where? Where is the miracle I speak of? Well, consider this and let your imagination translate the story into our own time, possibly to your own hometown. A young man whose father is a carpenter grows up working in his father's shop. One day he puts down his tools and walks out of his father's shop. He starts preaching He starts preaching on street corners and in the nearby countryside, walking from place to place, preaching all the while, even though he is not an ordained minister. He does this for three years. Then he is arrested, tried, and convicted. There is no court of appeal, so he is executed at the age of 33, along with two common thieves. Those in charge of his execution roll dice to see who gets his clothing, the only possessions that he has. His family cannot afford a burial place for him. So he is interned in a borrowed tomb. End of story? No. This uneducated, propertyless young man who left no written word has for 2,000 years had a greater effect on the world than all the rulers, kings, emperors, all the conquerors, generals, admirals, and all the scholars, scientists, and philosophers who have ever lived, all of them put together. How do we explain that? Unless he really was who he said he was. Ronald Reagan. Talking about Jesus, Reagan points out the reality that for a man who didn't accomplish a lot via the world's terms, sure is talked a lot about, sure is known by many people, and sure is worshiped by millions upon millions. Why? Because he's God. I feel like I'm hitting this over and over, but the more you read the Bible, the more that you open this up, you start to realize that from Genesis to Revelation, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. I don't think any honest person could read the Bible in its entirety and not see that it's all about Jesus. It's all about what he has done. It's all about what he has accomplished and how far he has reached with the reality that If you would trust him, you will forever be changed. I believe that there is an enemy who has truly helped mislead and especially America into believing that Jesus was either just a good person or a teacher or even that he was God or the God. But all we have to do is accept that intellectually, that we don't actually need to experience that. Because when you experience Jesus, it is impossible not to change. 
And when you trust Jesus with your life, your life starts to be transformed. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul makes a declaration. One who has truly received this grace continues to walk in the freedom of knowing Christ and being transformed by Christ progressively. Christianity is not a one and done, but a believe and being changed kind of faith. If we think that a a prayer we prayed when we were a child was enough, even though we do not act or believe what we did when we were young, we misunderstand, misrepresent, and miss the gospel completely. If Jesus did what he did, if Jesus is who he said that he is, if Jesus actually rose from the dead and we are offered a new life, we cannot continue in the life that we once had. That is the beauty of the gospel. We are forever changed and being changed through the good news of the gospel. So Paul exhorts the church in Colossae, and I'd contend us as well, to not veer from the message that saved our soul, but to embrace it, to center our life around it and to proclaim it. And by it, I mean him, Jesus, the author and the sustainer of our faith. Jesus is not a good idea. Jesus is good news. So many of us, so many of us treat Jesus like a good idea, but we miss the good news. Jesus is Lord to be followed and devoted to. He did for you what you could not do for yourself. And even though believing that is the start, it is so much more than just that. It's making him Lord and having faith that whatever he asks you to do is better than what you want to do in your own strength. If you want Jesus, you get him. If you don't, you get what your heart desires an eternity without him. And God is not an absentee father who created you and then left you alone. See, he initiates with his creation. He came to his creation and his creation rejected him. He sent his son and his creation attempted to murder him. Yet God is relentless for those whom he loves and he loves you. And he offers you to trust him with your life from your money to your eternity, from your identity to your calendar. Jesus wants all of it. But do you have the faith that is ultimately for your greater good to trust Jesus as Lord? I cannot stress this point more. It's all about Jesus. Many people have had their lives completely transformed, not by trying really hard to be good, not by having great church attendance, not by doing enough good to outweigh the bad, but by falling in love with Jesus because it's all about him. Without Jesus, you are living a life without the purpose that God intends for you to have. You are living a life without the joy that can only be found in Jesus. We preach the Bible to point you to Jesus. We live lives devoted to God to point you to Jesus. We want you to know who Jesus is, but most importantly, we want you to experience him personally. Everything we do as Christians is to point you to Jesus. So who do you say that Jesus is? I want you to wrestle with that this week. I want you to wrestle with that after you hear the sermon. And if you have not truly made a commitment to follow him, I'd encourage you to contact me or someone else on staff or the elders and let us know. We want to walk with you. We want to point you to what it really means to trust Jesus Christ with all that you are. I'm going to end with this story. I've told it before, but it it makes a ton of sense because I think so many people 
miss who Jesus is, even if they spent a lifetime around him. My wife's grandfather, a uh, great man, respected him, loved him so much. Four kids, all loved him. He was a great dude. And he uh, had been in the church for most of his life. And one Christmas time, we were down in LA spending time with him and we we're having a conversation and we got into a discussion about faith. And I started to realize that as we were talking about faith, I noticed that when he talked about Jesus, it wasn't the same Jesus of the word. And so I asked him point blank. I said, hey, Grandpa, who's Jesus to you? And his response was, well, he, he was a great man. He was a great teacher. And so I asked him, well, is he God? And Grandpa said, no. And that, that made me realize that all that time in the church, all those moments and times that he had spent in the church, he had totally missed it if they had even preached it. He had missed the true centrality of Jesus Christ, the centrality of the fact that he is the gospel personified. And so over some time through a book that I was reading and reading the Bible and preparing for a sermon that I was going to do, he and I ended up talking a little bit more. And I remember talking to him about the, the prodigal son. And I read him the passage about the prodigal son after explaining to him that Jesus isn't just a good teacher, isn't just a good man, but he's Lord. And I remember reading the prodigal son to him and talking about the prodigal who basically said, dad, I want my share of the estate. And then he took it and he ran off and he had a bunch of pleasure and a bunch of fun. And then he comes back and his father welcomes him with open arms. But then there were two lost sons in that story. And I don't even think I unpacked it. I think I just read it to my wife's grandfather. And I remember reading it to him where the older brother was all upset and frustrated that his dad had welcomed his brother back. And his, his brother was whining at his dad in Luke 15. And at the end of the story, as Jesus tells this parable, at the end of the story, the older brother is left outside of the party because he refuses to go in. I remember as I read that to grandpa, I looked up at him, never seen him cry in my entire life. I looked up at him and I saw tears in his eyes because God, through his spirit, the Holy Spirit, I think in that moment, removed the veil for him. I think for the very first time in his life, he realized, no, Jesus is Lord and the way I'm acting, I am the elder brother because I've done everything I thought I was supposed to do and then I thought that God owed me. And he told me that. And I got to pray with grandpa, with Don Collins, towards the end of his life, and he received Christ. He didn't accept him. He didn't try really hard to, to get Jesus to love him. He simply by grace received Jesus and the love that Jesus offered to him and the holiness and blamelessness that God can give us through his son. That happens, church. And it happens with people that have spent their entire lives in the church who have totally missed the point of the gospel, who is Jesus, because it's all about him. We're going to do an offering. And this is an opportunity for those of you who are part of COV to give. And if you choose to give through the offering, please know that it doesn't justify you. It doesn't get you a star next to your name in the book of life. It is simply a way to worship God between you and him. And so if you want to give of your offering to Church of the Valley, you can write a check and mail it to the church. If you want to give online, you can go to covalley.com and go to giving 
and it'll walk you through how to, you can do that online. For those of you that are consistently giving for the right reasons, I want to praise God because you are making it so we can do more and more ministry for the glory of God in this really weird season. For those of you who are yet to give, I'd encourage you to pray and ask God what he would have you do because we don't want you to do it out of compulsion or feeling like you have to. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for, for Tom Collins. Just the reminder of the fact that a man who had spent so much time in your church had missed it for so many years and through an anointed conversation, not because I'm a good storyteller or anything, God, but because of your word and because of your spirit, he resides with you in heaven for eternity. God, I pray that you would use us as your people to be quick to ask that question when we see someone who maybe doesn't get it. Who's Jesus? And would we be quick to testify when asked about who Jesus truly is to us? Would you make more disciples of your son using us, God, of different generations and nationalities over the entire continent and world? God, thank you that we get to be a part of what you're doing. May you be glorified through our offering and through our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.